Turn with me to John 8. John 8 this morning. That's how this outline. John chapter 8. This morning we'll be at verses 21 through 30. Uh, I said last week that this chapter in John 8 is, is packed with rich and glorious truths spoken by Jesus. Last week we heard him declare that he is the light of the world. We talked about what he means by that. This morning we're going to hear him declare the first of his claims that he is I am. These I am statements, uh, there's a lot of them in the Gospel of John. Um, there are seven I am statements that have a, a modifier attached. So for example, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. There's seven of these that he speaks in John. But there are also these I am statements that don't have a modifier attached. They're called these absolute I am statements. And they absolutely shout and proclaim his deity. This morning, we're going to see the first of these I am statements. We're going to learn just what it means that he is the I am. We're going to see how his identity as the I am has been revealed. And we're going to learn why faith in him as the I am is so essential. So I've entitled this passage, Two Reasons Why We Must Embrace Jesus as the I Am. In the Gospel of John, faith, or believing, is obviously a central purpose, right? John 20, 31, these things have been written so that you might, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But John is not after any kind of faith whatsoever. We've already seen in John over and over again that there is a certain kind of faith, right? That John is after and that Jesus is after. There is a kind of faith that Jesus rejects in the Gospel of John. So John is after a certain kind of faith from his readers. But an essential ingredient in the kind of faith that John is after is based on a specific content. Okay? There's a specific content about Jesus. John doesn't simply want you to believe that Jesus is Messiah. He wants you to believe that he is a certain kind of Messiah. Because only that will be saving faith. There's a specific content that must be included in saving faith. That obviously doesn't mean that all saving faith is is knowing content. There's obviously more, but it's not less than this. And this content contains two components. There is faith in his the nature of his person and in the nature of his work. Who Jesus actually is must be known and believed, and what he accomplished on the cross must be known and trusted. And the two are obviously inseparable, right? What he accomplished is dependent on his nature, who he is. So they're both absolutely important. Knowledge of his person and knowledge of his, his work. And this morning, we're going to be looking at just one of those essential components that must go into what must be known and believed about his person. None of this means that you have to be an expert theologian 
to become a Christian. It doesn't mean that upon conversion you have all your theological ducks in a row. It doesn't mean that there isn't still much more to learn and to be learned. There is. It just means that there are some basic truths about Jesus which must be known and believed. So I don't anticipate saying anything new or novel this morning. Uh, if I do, you should probably get up and, and run out quickly. But I hope that these truths are going to be sweet, nourishing, and a reminder, um, and a comfort, and a spur in your lives. So let's look at the, the two reasons why we must embrace Jesus as the I Am. The first is found in verses 21 through 24. Faith in Jesus as the I Am is essential because it alone delivers from the judgment for sin. Up to this point in the Gospel of John, the word sin has only been used one time. John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The verb sin comes up one time as well in John 5. But other than that, we haven't encountered this word. Now the concept of sin has certainly been present through the whole Gospel, but has not been explicitly spoken until here. But now in John 8, we get three blows, one after another. One in verse 21, you will die in your sin. And then in verse 24, two more times, you will die in your sins. Then it's going to come up again in verse 34 and 46. Sin is the great problem with humanity because sin leads to certain judgment. Sin is not a popular word or, or concept. I don't think it ever has been. People cringe when they hear it. They try to find more comfortable alternatives for it. Um, I remember seeing a TV interview with Joel Osteen where he says, well, we don't talk about sin at our church. We want to find language that makes people more comfortable. You've probably seen the, the clip. That's not unusual in America. Thousands of churches across America rarely, if ever, speak of sin and the judgment that it brings. But while sin is certainly not good news in itself, it's essential if you're going to know the good news of Christ. So look at verse 21. Jesus here directs his words again to the, to the crowds, and he does so to expose mankind's dire condition. And he does it first by his pronouncement of certain judgment. Look at verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. He said something very similar to this back in chapter 7, verses 33 through 34. He tells him that he's come from the Father, and he's going back to the Father through his cross and resurrection. And when he goes away, the Jews will be forever separated from him if they persist in unbelief. Look what he says. He says, you will seek me. Back in verse 34 of chapter 7, he said, you'll seek me and not find me. And I think the same idea is here as well. The idea is that if you fail to come to terms with his person in this life, you will have lost all opportunity. He's saying something like this. Look at the next line. You will die in your sin. He's saying, I'm about to return to the Father. If you persist in rejecting me, you will die in your sin. 
and then it will be too late. You'll cry out for me for relief. I will not be found. Sounds very similar to wisdom, chapter one of Proverbs, you think back there. He's warning them with the reality of the coming judgment and the urgency to receiving his, his person now. Look again at that statement. You will die in your sin. The prophets said very similar things to this. Look, look at a couple of them here. Jeremiah 31. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten the sour grapes, and the children's teeth are shed outside on edge. It's a proverbial saying. The father sinned, and the children bear the judgment. No, everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Literally, in his own sin. Ezekiel 18. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, does the same abominations the wicked person does, shall he live? None of his righteous deeds he shall, shall be remembered for the treachery which he is guilty, the sin he has committed for. In them he shall die. To die in your sin means to die in judgment for your sin. It is to be unrepentant in your sin and condemned for your personal sin. Look back here at verse 21. Notice sin is singular. But down in verse 24, it is plural both times. I think 24, it's plural because it's representing the many individual sins you may be guilty of. But in verse 21, it is singular because I think it's specifically talking about the sin of unbelief, the sin of rejection of Messiah. He says, you will die in your sin. He means you'll die in the guilt of your unbelief and rejection of me. Does that mean that they don't have any other sins that they're guilty of? They're only guilty of this one sin? Well, no. Look back to chapter 3, if you will, verse 18. This is the paradigm that John wants us to get. John chapter 3, verse 18. John says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned, what? Already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son, God. So there are two points that, that are being made here. The first is that humanity is already condemned, owing to their original condition, the many sins in their lives. Christ is the only solution to that problem. And to reject him is to reject your only hope. That's what he says. But there's also another important point. Look here in, in, in verse 18. Their guilt is heightened for rejecting the Son of God. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, the unique Son of God. So this is what Jesus is saying here in chapter 8, verse 21, I think. You will die in your sin because you've rejected your only hope of salvation. And you'll die in your sin because you have rejected the one and only unique Son of God. Well, if that were not enough, he goes on to the rest of the verse. Look at the end of chapter 8, verse 21. He said, you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Where is Jesus going? To the cross. To the, father, to the cross, but through the cross to the Father. He's come from the Father. He's going to the Father. And so to die in one's sins is to be cut off from access 
father. Again, this would have been an astounding thing to tell Jews who were confident that they were going to get into the kingdom. He says, you're not going to heaven. You will not go to the father because they've rejected the only way, which is Christ. Flip over to chapter 13 of John. He says something very similar but very different to his disciples. Chapter 13. Look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, it's our passage, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Look down to verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. You will follow me afterward. It's different for believers. Look down now at chapter 14, verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's come from the Father. And only faith in him brings you back to the Father. So these are very basic and fundamental truths. I do not doubt that everybody in this room knows and could articulate what we just said. But why am I emphasizing them so much? First, I'm emphasizing it because this passage is emphasizing it. Three times Jesus says the same Thing. You will die in your sins. I'm also emphasizing it because it's so easy and so tempting to push thoughts of eternal judgment out of our minds. They don't carry the kind of weight that they ought. We don't pray like we ought. We don't share the gospel like we ought because we've minimized the real problem. We make the gospel about other things make it trite and superficial because we've forgotten this important and main aspect of the reason for the gospel. I'm also emphasizing it because if you're unaware, the truth that sin and judgment are the main problems with humanity, the main problems, and that it is the main concern with the gospel, that truth is being denied right and left in our world today, in evangelicalism today. Other issues are taking center stage. Our problems are being articulated in ways that are totally foreign to the pages of Scripture. The entire social justice movement that's moving into the church wants to redefine the problems with humanity as oppression, systemic racism, white privilege, all these other terms that are being thrown around. The problem is that when you redefine the problem with humanity, you also redefine the solution for humanity. And the definitions of the gospel being advanced today are antithetical to those in Scripture because the problem with humanity has been changed. We're told the gospel is not about sin and deliverance from judgment and the creation of a holy people, but about social transformation, fixing society, according to man-made standards. But 
Jesus here removes all doubt as the main problem and the main thing the gospel is about. You will die in your sin. That is the main purpose of the gospel. That is the greatest problem in your life. Your sin is an affront to a holy God. And certain judgment is coming. But there's good news. And that good news is coming in verse 24. But before we get there, look at verse 22. The arrogant self-confidence of, of man. Look how they respond to, to Jesus. Verse 22. The Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he said, where I am going, you cannot come? They propose a, a mocking interpretation of his words. They say, will he kill himself? In Judaism, suicide was regarded as um, something of, with great contempt. Those who committed suicide would not only perish for it in Jewish theology, but they would go to some of the worst judgment in the, in the afterlife. So this is what they, they think of Jesus. They looked at him so much that he's, they're willing to consider him to be such a person. So it's almost as if they're saying this. Is he going to kill himself and, go, and so go to hell while we go to the kingdom and be with the Father? Where else can he go that we won't be able to find him. The obvious irony is what? It's the exact opposite, right? They blind and ignore Jesus' warning because of their self-arrogance. So verse 21, we get the judgment pronounced. In verse 22, we get the misunderstanding of man. And now we come to verses 23 and 24, where Jesus explains mankind's condition and his exclusive provision. Look at verse 23. He gives the reason why they misunderstood in verse 22 and why he gave his words of condemnation in verse 21. Verse 23. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are from this world. I am not of this world. They misunderstood him and they stand condemned because they are from this world world. They're characterized by earthly, man-centered reasoning. They judge Christ according to the flesh, according to superficial, man-centered values. They're oblivious to spiritual realities. They're only concerned with this life. Superficiality governs their lives. And you know this is true. You have shared the gospel with people before. And it is like bouncing ping pong balls off of the great wall, right? It does nothing. There's just no penetration. They're oblivious to spiritual realities. They're oblivious to their spiritual condition. It doesn't even penetrate. Total lack of concern with any of these truths. That's the problem with humanity. They are from the world. And this problem not only hinders them from understanding Christ, it is the reason they are condemned. Why they will die in their sin. They're from the world. But not only does Jesus highlight their nature, he also highlights his, uh, his authority. Look what he says. You're from below, but I am from above. You're from this world, but I am not from this world. He's telling us his authority. He tells says that he has authority to pronounce their judgment and he has authority to expose their condition because he has come from God. 
He's not from this world. He's unlike them in every way. Because of that, he's also the only solution for mankind. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, the glorious exception to the pronounced judgment. Let's read it. Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus has just clarified that he spoke the judgment in verse 21 because these people belong to the world. Because he belongs to heaven, and now he makes the same pronouncement again, but this time clarifying the central reason for their condemnation and also their only hope for salvation. He says that the escape from judgment will come through faith alone in Jesus as the I am. Let's read it again. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am. Your translation might say, I am he. In Greek, it's just ego me. I am. You will die in your sins. So friends, hear the good news of the gospel in this verse. Put it positively. If you do believe that Jesus is the I am, you will not die in your sins. Faith in the person of Christ as he truly is and he's revealed himself and all that he's accomplished delivers people from the certainty of judgment for sin and gives them access to be with the Father. This is the glorious expectation of promised judgment. Go back to chapter 5, if you would, verse 24 with me. Something very similar said there. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. That's what he's been talking about. But has already passed from death into life. For believers, judgment is a thing of the past. You've already entered into life. You will not die in your sins because judgment is past. Do not come into it. You've already entered life. It's a glorious exception of the gospel. Go back to chapter 8, verse 24. Let's consider what he says a little bit more. What is it specifically that must be believed? He says, except you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, we've already encountered these I am statements of Jesus several times. And most of the time, they have this modifier attached. So, I am light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the, the bread of life. In those cases, though, the word I am doesn't necessarily indicate deity. It's just a way of self-expression, uh, self-testimony. It's me. I am this or I am that. Um, not only Jesus says, ego a me, I am. Um, people say it. Look over to chapter 9, verse 9. The man born blind... Chapter 9, verse 9, people are asking, who is it? Others said, it is he. Others said, no, it's like him. But he kept saying, echo a me. In Greek, it's just simply, I am. So just the words, I am, by themselves, is not an indication of deity. 
Right? It's a way of saying, it's me. I am this or I am that. So when Jesus speaks, I am usually always has something attached to it, and the bread of life, or there's something nearby that it's obvious what he's talking about. Again, that this man here, chapter 9, verse 9, I am, well, who is he? Look up at verse 8. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Well, he's the man who used to sit and, and beg. That's what he's saying. But in our verse, chapter 8, verse 24, we get something entirely different. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, he attaches no modifier to it. And there's nothing in the context that he would be referring to. It stands alone. And the way the Jews respond in verse 25 show us that there's something strange about Jesus' words here. Unless you believe that I am. This is the first of several I am absolute statements in John. We're going to get another one down in verse 28, and then the climax of the chapter in verse 58, where even these Jews don't even miss what he's saying. Um, a clear claim to deity. In other words, when Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, he is making an explicit claim to deity. There's a number of places in the Greek Old Testament where this ego me, I am, is applied to Yahweh God. Let me show you a couple of them. First is in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. It's the foundational text, I'm sure you are aware. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, tell this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, has sent me to, to you. So I think this is definitely a foundational text, but I think in our place in John, Jesus is probably alluding more to Isaiah in the 40s. Look at, look at this one, chapter 41, verse 4. It's the Lord speaking. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I am. Yahweh, the Lord, the first, and with the last, echoing me, I am. It just stands alone, suspended there, nothing before it, nothing after it, I am. Another one. You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that, echo in me, I am. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall it begin after me. Another one. I, this one in, in, in Greek, it's double. Ego a me. Ego a me. I am. I am. He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Another one. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob. In Israel, whom I called, I am. I am the first. And ego a me. I am the last. When Yahweh says it here and when Jesus says it, it implies self-existence. It implies preeminence. It implies that God is defined by nothing beyond himself. He's defined by himself. I am. There's nothing else beyond me which would define me. And when Jesus says here that unless you believe that ego in me, that I am, he is speaking in the same manner as Yahweh and claiming the same things about himself. Jesus is Yahweh, God. He possesses the same self-existent life of God. John chapter 1 verse 4, in him was life, self-existent life. He's pre-existent, John 1 1. He was with God and the word was God. 
therefore any claim to believe him must embrace him as the pre-existent, self-existent God who was made flesh, crucified, risen, ascended to the Father. And yeah, that's basic Orthodox teaching. Again, it's nothing new for you. You know that. But I want you to hear how exclusive this is. There's a certainty of judgment apart from it. He says, except you believe that I am. This is where Christianity becomes offensive. Nobody cares if you believe Jesus is God. They really don't. You can believe whatever you want nowadays. The early church was not persecuted because they believed Jesus is, is God. Rome would have been glad to throw another God in their pantheon and just expand it a, a little bit more. It is the exclusivity of Christianity that demands that all other gods, including Caesar, are false. And Jesus alone is the true God. That is why they were persecuted, and that why you'll be persecuted today. It's an exclusivity in Christianity. It demands that salvation not only requires faith, but a specific faith and doctrine and specific teaching about exactly who Jesus is. So if you're wondering, where in the Bible does it teach that you have to believe Jesus is God in order to be saved? It's right here. Unless you believe, I am, you'll die in your sins. Why? Why is that so important? Because only God can make you right with God. <laughs> only God can atone for your sins. Only God can forgive your sins. And if Jesus were not God, then he would be a heretic or false prophet because of the things that he declared in these passages. So faith in Jesus as the I am is essential because it alone delivers from the judgment for sin. So before we go on, any questions or, or, or comments on Yeah. Why did the Jews think they were getting to heaven? Like it was just an assumption? It, it, they, they were Jews. And we're going to see it later here in, in, in John 8. We're children of Abraham. Like we're sort of automatically in. We're circumcised. We follow all the traditions, all the rituals. We, we, we do all the externals of, of Judaism. Um, Jesus exposed in John, they, they didn't really believe Moses. Um, they didn't really train up hearts that truly loved to desire to obey God as they missed him as well. Yeah, if you even read um, Jewish literature from this time, it was the basic expectation. You're Jew, you're going to get in. Right? It's the Gentiles who will be, will be cast out. It's, you know, the same thing we have in, in the churches today. Superficial profession. Grew up in the church, made a profession. I'm in, right? Same idea. Michael, would you say that Matthew 16 gives insight into what some of the common thoughts about who Jesus yeah. was? So yeah, like, absolutely. Some say he's John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Is that would that be? Could you, I guess, correlate that with the past we're in today? Mm -hmm. Is that some of the thoughts that were going around at that time? I think so. Yeah, certainly. Um, you even see that in our our passage back in chapter seven. Remember, some people said this is really the prophet. Other people say he's the Christ. Other people say no, the Christ can't come from Galilee. There's certainly confusion and debate and misunderstanding. We're going to see the misunderstanding um, even in our, our text today. But yeah, it would be some other people they would probably try to identify him as.
good. All right, we'll look at verses 25 to 30 now. Faith in Jesus is also essential because it has been clearly revealed. Look at verse 25. They said to him, who are you? <laughs> so their words are filled with just exasperation, right? Uh, their question shows that Jesus' words, except you believe I am, they're not ordinary. He intentionally left something off. And so they respond by saying, you are who, right? They don't get it, but they're going to get it by the end of the chapter. But notice, Jesus does not answer their question directly. He doesn't say, I'm God. What he does do is he directs them back to his prior self-revelation and then forward to the ultimate exposure in the cross. And this, he will also define for us what he means and what he doesn't mean by claiming to be I am. So in verses 25 to 29 now, his person must be accurately known through his self-revelation. You might want to give the Jews a break here. I mean, Jesus, you're saying is a, it's a bit confusing, right? People don't talk like that. Was Jesus meaning that plain? Should they have understood what he was saying? Should they have known the answer to the question? And the answer is yes, they should have. How? Well, Jesus tells them here in the next verse. He said it was clearly declared through his ministry. Look at verse 25. They said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. The sentence is a bit difficult in Greek. I think it goes something like this I am speaking to you that which I spoke to you in the very beginning of my ministry. He's saying that what he's declaring now, he's already declared from the very outset of his earthly ministry. He doesn't clarify for him what he means because it should have been plain. They should have gotten it by now. Had they not judged him according to the flesh, they would have understood exactly what he's claiming to be. Because all of his words and his works declare this very thing. <clears throat> Well, look where he goes next. Look at verse 26 now. He says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Jesus notes there's a lot more to say about their spiritual condition, but he's going to save that for later. We're going to get that in the next few weeks. Before he goes there, he, he clarifies something very, very important about his person that you and I need to see. And it's something that's repeated over and over in John, almost to the point of just repetition. You're like, why does he keep emphasizing this, repeating this? Look what, look what he says. Verse 26 again. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Jesus has been sent, and Jesus speaks not his words, but the words given unto by the Father. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying is, yes, I am indeed very God and very God, but I am also the unique Son of God. And if you get that wrong, you will not have life. So while he is, I am, he is God. He's not claiming to exhaust the being of God because there is also God the Father and God the Spirit. He is the unique son sent by the Father. In other words, you must have a Trinitarian theology. 
Jesus is saying, I've demonstrated from the very beginning of my ministry that I am the I am. But as essential as that is that you receive me as God incarnate, it's also equally essential you receive me as the divine son. Sent by the Father, speaking his words, accomplishing his work. Jesus says, the one who sent me is true. That means the true God is ultimately behind and responsible for his coming. He's come in complete dependence on the Father. You say, Michael, why is that so essential to believe he's the Son? He's been sent by the Father. Because while Jesus is indeed fully God there, it's more to God's being than just the Son, the Father, the spirit and if you reject those it is just as serious as rejecting the son look at chapter five i'll just put a quick chart up here you say where should the jews have learned both of these things that he is indeed very god and very god and also the unique son and what that what that means i don't have time to, to read all these passages i'll just highlight them in chapter five you remember he makes claims that only god could make and yet he also makes claims that highlight that he's not, there's not just, God's not just a singular person. There's one God in three persons, and he relates to the Father in perfect harmony and submission. He claims to work on the same terms as God the Father. He claims to work all the works of the Father. Only God could claim that. He claims to have been received, who have, to have received and been shown all the Father's works. Only God could claim that. He claims to give life to the dead from his own life. He claims to receive the same honor as the Father. Only God could claim all these things. And on it goes. You see, he, from the very beginning, demonstrated them. He's, I am who I am, but he's also the unique son who's come, dependent on his Father. Well, his, his person certainly declared through his earthly ministry, but now we're coming to the climax of this passage now. Verse 27. 29 has also been supremely displayed through his cross. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak, just as the Father taught me. Not only do they miss that Jesus is the I am, they meant that missed that he was sent by the Father. And so Jesus points them forward to the cross where these truths will be put on maximum exposure. So when Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, notice who, who's doing the lifting up here? Let's say, when you, right? When you have lifted up the, the Son of Man, they will crucify Jesus. They will be responsible for his death. But this word in John, lifted up, we've seen it several times, we'll see it again. The idea certainly implies his lifting up on the cross. There's a double meaning to this word because the word lifting up always means exaltation and glory and honor. Jesus is saying that the very moment of his greatest humiliation and sorrow will also be the moment of his greatest glory and splendor. Because it will be in the cross, the crucifixion of the I am by the hands of his enemies that the glory of God will be put on the clearest display. It will be displayed because Jesus, the God-man, willingly laid down his life to be killed by those who deserve judgment 
from him. And in laying down his life in this way, he demonstrates the very character, the very heart of God. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. That was put on the clearest display. God's character and heart was put on the clearest display on the cross. Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. Up to this point, they didn't know. Jesus says, through the cross, they will know. It doesn't mean that all these Jews will become believers, but it means that if they do come to know these truths about Jesus, it will be because of the cross. The cross, more than anything else, declares that he is I am, and he is the unique Son of God. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. Look what he says. You'll know two things. Chapter, uh, verse 28. Then you will know that I am. The very deity of Christ. He's God in the flesh. The very nature of God is revealed in the cross as he displays the very heart of God. And what else is going to be revealed? Verse 28. That I am and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. It will be revealed that he is the unique Son of God, the perfect son, the obedient son to the point of death his father's plan. Almost done. Look at verse verse 29 now. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 29 tells us that his death on the cross will not be a sign of God's displeasure in him cross was not a sign that Jesus was forsaken by God. It was the greatest demonstration of his obedience and pleasing to God ever to be done by man. The father was with Jesus because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The cross declares the deity of Jesus. Yes, it's true, but it also declares his perfect submission to the father. And the Father's perfect delight and satisfaction with his Son. And there, my friends, is another reason you must have a trinity. Because without the Son, nobody pleases God. And without the Father, nobody is pleased with you or the Son. But Jesus is the I Am. He's the self-existent God and the eternal Son. Therefore, by faith, you will die in your sins. He's pleased the Father and satisfied the Father perfectly in your behalf. He secured the Father's favor and delight. Look what he says. I always do the things which are pleasing to him, even to the point of death on the cross. He carried out the Father's will to the extreme point of the cross such that all who are in him, by faith, are just as fully loved and delighted over and satisfied with and pleased by the Father as Jesus himself is. The song comes to mind when I was studying, sing it at church, Complete in thee, the work of mine, could take, dear Lord, the place of thine. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and I shall stand complete yea justified O blessed thought and sanctified salvation wrought that blood hath pardoned bought for me and glorified I too 
shall be. He is I am, and he is the perfect son, and because he's that, he not only made atonement, he perfectly pleased his father in your place, and in him, you're loved and received just as he is, and you will not die in your sins. But you must have faith. Look at verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Must be responded with the personal faith. It's the exclusive means of salvation. The point of the passage this week is the content of faith, which has to be believed. But we're going to see that this faith of the people in verse 30 next week is not so sincere as, uh, as it first appears. Jesus will expose them as we go on. And next week we'll be talking about the kind of faith that is necessary for salvation. This is a glorious passage. Next week will be the same, I think. Any questions, comments? Yeah. Yeah, I just have a question. You mentioned there was sufficient um, prior declaration that kind of uh, the Jews didn't have an excuse. It just made me wonder, uh, was Jesus often talking to the same Jews? Like in Pharisees, whenever he was doing all of these discourses, like in chapter 5 and in here? Um, is that kind of like a common thing? Would they all kind of gather and it would be the same people? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if it would necessarily be the, the exact same people. We know it's in general the same people. Because chapter 5, remember, he does this sign and they're very angry with him that he violated the Sabbath and that he's claiming to be God doing it. They're attacking him for that very reason. Um, and then that same issue comes back up again in chapter 7. Chapter 8 is all in the same time frame. So whether it's the specific people, we don't know. They certainly knew, you know, what he was teaching, you know, in, in, in general. And uh, the fact that it, it repeats, it brings up those, you know, former teachings in later chapters. He makes that pretty clear. We should have known it. Questions? Comments? Yes, Matt. This is probably just kind of restating some of your points, but I was looking at your point uh, the certainty of judgment of heart to faith in Christ and the escape of judgment through faith in Christ. And in thinking about what you were saying early on about how many churches today don't preach about sin and judgment, and how if you miss that, then like if you miss the ultimate judgment and you're not believing in that, then you're really, really concerned. And the biggest concern you have is what the world around you thinks now. Whereas if you realize this judgment that's coming, and if there's it's inescapable apart from faith, but it is escapable through faith, then all of a sudden the, the perception of people around you about what you think and believe doesn't matter anywhere near as much. Because their judgment, whatever judgment they can lay on you now, is, is minuscule in comparison to the coming judgment. That's good. Amen. And we've seen it over and over in John. Um, people are concerned with this life. They want bread. They don't want the bread of life. They want Jesus to give them bread. They, they want this life. They want their temporary lifestyle. Questions? Comments? All right, guys. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Cause it to bear fruit in our lives. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to live today in light of the fact who Jesus is, what he accomplished, 
We've passed from death into life. Judgment is done. Let the drive of our life now be to abide in Christ and bear fruit for you, for your glory and honor. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name.